Okay, we're going to talk about the 10 most commonly missed radiographic findings in the emergency department. We're going to highlight some published insurance company data on the radiographic findings that we, as emergency physicians, most commonly miss. Um, we're going to describe some of the most commonly missed findings, what those are, and apply some strategies on how to interpret these things more accurately. And um, all the images from my talk are going to be included, uh, that are included in this talk are found in my, my textbook, Clinical Emergency Radiology. Yes, that was a completely shameless plug. Um, Marianne Paget's the Unity, the Unity of Mistakes has long been considered a landmark text on the nature of medical error. Paget, who herself died because of a medical error, argued that mistakes are an intrinsic part of the clinical process, encompassing a much wider range of error than the words malpractice, incompetence, or negligence. The Unity of Mistakes takes an existential view of medical work in which things go wrong as a matter of course and probes what Paget called the complex sorrow that can result when things do go wrong. To pull her quote from her book, she says, I began the study when I became aware of the anguish of clinical action and of the moral ambiguity of being a clinician, a person who acts, acts sometimes mistakenly, and therefore lives with the experience of being wrong. Paget argues that, that actions contain risk, and since medical mistakes put at risk human beings, not just the acted upon, but the actors, her concern is with the subtle effects this endemic danger has upon our clinical work. Anyways, it's an interesting read to put into the context of medical imaging because, after all, the errors are errors now, but they were not errors before. Here's a study published in 2007, Missed and Delayed Diagnoses in the Emergency Department, a study of closed malpractice claims from four insurance, uh, liability insurers. And uh, essentially, they looked at 122 closed malpractice claims from four different liability insurers. And they had these uh, reviewers, these trained physician reviewers, that decided if these outcomes uh, was because of a misdiagnosis. There were 79 claims that involved a misdiagnosis in which patients were harmed. And 58% of the time, this was failure to order a diagnostic test. 42% of the time, this was failure to perform an adequate history and physical. A third of the time, it was failure to order a consult. And 37% of the time, it was the incorrect interpretation of a diagnostic test, which is what we're going to be talking more about. But if you break it down by the, uh, the missed diagnoses, 19% of these were missed fractures. And if you look at just the failure to order the appropriate tests, 22% of these were um, failure to order the appropriate x-ray. So uh, of the majority of the time, it wasn't because clinicians didn't recognize they were actually uh, required. So this is a table out of that same study, and essentially the process uh, breaks down. Um, the process breakdown occurs because, number one, failure to order um, which x-rays were involved 22% and two, incorrect interpretation which x-rays were involved in 52%. So this tells me, um, if you look, compare the x-rays compared to CT and other things, this tells me how difficult actually plain films can be compared to their um, imaging modality counterparts. And another study, this one was in 2001 by Banger and Liborn from the UK and they compared radiology callbacks and emergency physician callbacks from uh, missed findings on x-rays. So essentially um, they took just under 20,000 patients with about 11,000 x-rays 
and uh, there were 175 discrepancies. Out of all those patients, only 1.5%, which is a discrepancy. There were 136 false negatives by the emergency department, and 40 of them, or 0.3%, needed a change in management as a result. There were 39 false negatives by radiology, and 16, or 0.1%, were called back. So basically, there's really not much of a difference between us and, and radiology, according to this study. If you look over here at Table 2, it just shows you the, uh, the 40 cases that the emergency physicians missed, which required um, a callback. And uh, not surprisingly, these are all mostly skeletal films and uh, chest x-rays. So this study by Trotlin in 1984, published in the Annals of Emergency Medicine, going back to the 80s, looked at malpractice in the ED, another um, situation where a, a malpractice insurance released 200 consecutive cases and two-thirds of the time was because of misdiagnosis. Again, that 19% number pops up again resulted from incorrect interpretation of x-rays. So basically another large report of malpractice cases um, telling us that we got to worry about x-rays. And also back in the 80s, ASEP published their guide to effective practice management that errors were related to the misdiagnosis of fractures with the third largest payout of malpractice uh, claims. So, um, so that's the background, that's the problem. How do we interpret these things? We're going to start with the foot and work our way up. Here is, um, just to review briefly the anatomy of the foot, we see um, the A means the medial uh, cuneiform, sometimes called the first cuneiform. B is the intermediate and C the lateral cuneiform and again sometimes called the third cuneiform. D the cuboid, E the navicular, we see F as the talus and then G is the calcaneus. Now in a normal uh, foot, uh, the uh, medial aspect of the second uh, metatarsal should line up with the uh, second cuneiform on the PA view. Now this is not an oblique, this is a PA view, and you should see this nice alignment in that, in that area there. Now if you look at the oblique view on the other hand, uh, the medial edges, this time it's the third metatarsal with the lateral or third cuneiform. Uh, should line up and uh, we can see that happening just there. So that's that's normal. Now the Lisfranc joint um, line, or the Lisfranc joint line, describes the anatomic boundary between the rigid midfoot and the suppler weight-bearing forefoot. Any instability disruption in this area can lead to significant pain and disability uh, when you're trying to ambulate. And um, Jacques Lisfranc lived from 1790 to 1847. He was a field surgeon in Napoleon's army, served on the Russian front. He wrote a new, he wrote about a new amputation technique, which involved um, between the forefoot and the midfoot. This route became known as the Lisfranc joint, um, and it's there's this ligament there, the Lisfranc ligament that attaches the second metatarsal base to the first cuneiform. It's the fracture of that second metatarsal base with dislocations. Uh, therefore, metatarsals 2 through 5 from the midfoot, um, that is the Lisfranc fracture dislocation. But it turns out that you can have an avulsion fracture of just the second metatarsal bone alone. It's a link, is a Lisfranc injury, even if the bones line up, uh, because if you fracture that second metatarsal base, that's where the ligament is. It attaches right there at the base, and uh, you've got, you're going to have the, um, the misalignment occur at a later time. So watch out for those subtle um, Lisfranc injuries because 20% of these are missed. Now this is a 23-year-old male who's got um, essentially uh, 
malalignment on his PA view of the uh, medial tarsal metatarsal joint shown by that uh, arrowhead and there's a fracture at the base of the second metatarsal you can see it with the arrow you know and I first looked at this I thought it was a little bit subtle um, but uh, basically when these two bones uh, no longer line up that's the tip off that this is a Liz Frank injury here's a 19 year old man this is two views of a 19 year old males that reveals another uh, example of a Liz Frank fracture subluxation the PA view there on your left shows the lack of a normal alignment between the medial margin of the second metatarsal with the medial margin of the middle cuneiform. And on the oblique view to your right, you will see uh, the lack of normal alignment between the medial margin of the third metatarsal with the third cuneiform um, and even the fourth metatarsal with the medial margin of the cuboid. So we can see this here. These, this is all dislocated. So this is another classic example of a uh, Liz Frank. And this one is, again, another obvious example of that midfoot, forefoot uh, separation that is the Liz Frank joint. We're going to turn our sights now on the calcaneus. And um, the calcaneus has two primary articulations, both the talus and the cuboid. The most posterior aspect of the calcaneus is called the tuberosity. The most superior aspect of the calcaneus is known as the posterior facet here. And it is the intersection of these two lines that uh, basically we're going to draw here. And so Bowler's angle specifically is the line that connects that superior aspect of the posterior facet right here with the most superior point of the calcaneal tuberosity here. So that's one line. And then you go back to the superior aspect of the posterior facet and you connect a line that goes to the most superior aspect of the anterior process of the calcaneal bone. You get these two lines and the angle between these two here is Bowler's angle. It's essentially the complement of the angle at the apex of the posterior facet. And just to zoom in on it a little bit more, um, you can see these here that again it's the line that connects the superior aspect of the posterior facet to the superior most point of the calcaneal tuberosity and then another line that comes from that superior aspect of the posterior facet to the most superior aspect of the anterior process and we see it here when it's positive we see that uh, Bowler's angle right here less than 20 degrees can be the only tip-off to a subtle calcaneal fracture. This calcaneal fracture down here you have to kind of strain your eyes a little bit but it's where the arrow is that's what's telling us that this is uh, that Bowler's angle is cluing us in that there is a fracture somewhere on this foot and if you look closely you can see it there. Okay moving now to the talus the neck is the most common location for a tal talus fracture it occurs with massive uh, dorsiflexion like stepping up on a curb you want to look for subtle cortical fracture on that lateral view and keep in mind that avascular necrosis can lead to collapse and pretty bad degenerative arthritis can result so you don't want to miss these and again it's that neck of the talus that we're looking have our sights focused on here and this is an example here of a lateral ankle initially this talus fracture was missed by a radiologist um, but when you look a little closer you can see that there's a fracture line right through the neck of that talus here now switching out to the knee uh, sometimes these injuries are kind of occult at the first presentation um, this person, uh, this, there's no fracture line seen here on this uh, AP view to your left, but two weeks later, the patient came back, they still were limping around, we got another film, 
and now you can see that there's a subtle but present tibial plateau fracture uh, right through here. And so these uh, tibial plateau fractures, it's usually like a knee versus bumper of a car is kind of a mechanism. Um, X-rays uh, are only 85% sensitive, as we just saw on the acute stages. Um, so anytime you got a patient who can't walk after blunt trauma, you always want to think about getting a CT scan if you can localize their pain down there to their knee. This is a 24-year-old female whose AP knee shows an irregularity along the lateral tibial plateau with a band of sclerosis between the subchondral bone plate and the epiphyseal scar. Here's the oblique view um, on the same patient um, that confirms this finding. It's often helpful in equivocal cases uh, when you can't get a CT scan. This is, um, can help be helpful there. CT, as we know, is much more sensitive in detecting tibial plateau fractures as compared to plain radiography. Uh, and is also often used for preoperative planning and management decisions. So the majority of these patients end up getting something like this. And you can see on this patient here, um, on the coronal reformations, we can confirm the presence of that impacted lateral tibial uh, plateau fracture. Now moving to the ankle, um, keep, recall that a Mesonuve fracture um, can be when you have a proximal fibular fracture with a medial malleolus, uh, fracture as well from severe abduction and external rotation of the ankle. This is a 54-year-old man that shows a transverse fracture of his medial malleolus on the bottom left image and it extends to involve the posterior malleolus we can see on the bottom right image. In this situation, especially if the distal talo, I'm sorry, tibiofibular space is widened, um, views of the proximal tibia and fibula on the top right up there are recommended to look for proximal masonuve fracture of the fibula. So this AP film on the bottom left also shows the that, that the tibiofibular tibio clear space from A to B from that lateral border of the posterior tibial malleolus to the medial border of the fibula should be less than two millimeters, but we can see the distance AB there widened. So on one film, we can see both problems, the masonu fracture of the medial malleolus and proximal fibula, that is the masonu fracture. Okay, we're gonna move down to talk about the pelvis. When you look at a pelvis film, you wanna trace the rings formed by the arcuate line and the obturator foramina to look for any irregularities. You wanna examine the pubic symphysis, keeping in mind its width should not exceed five millimeters and its superior borders align. You wanna check the SI joints to make sure they're of equal width and are of symmetric. You want to inspect the sacral foramina for any breaks in their smooth arcs. Carefully examine that acetabulum by tracing its superior and inferior rims, the articular surfaces, and comparing for symmetry. And finally, you want to look at the iliac wings and portions of the L-spine and femurs for any lucencies or irregularities. So once again, first thing I do is I trace the rings. I trace the arcuate line, and then I look at the foramina. And then I come down to look at the superior pubic symphysis and make sure that this space is not more than five millimeters and that their upper edges um, align. I look at the, uh, the sacroiliac or SI joints to make sure that they look nice and symmetric. I inspect the sacral foramina for any break in their nicely smooth arcs. And I look at the acetabulum, the rims, and the articular surfaces by comparing those sides for, for symmetry. And finally, out at the iliac wings and the L-spine. So, Here's a normal pelvis film. Again, I look at the obturator foramen. Uh, 
I'm sorry, the obturator foramen are down here. Um, this is the sacral uh, foramen. This is the arcuate line as it comes down. And I also take a look at the pubic symphysis, making sure it's less than five millimeters, and that the superior borders align. I look at the SI joints to make sure that they're nice and equal and symmetric. I look at the sacral foramina themselves to make sure that they appear nicely smooth and uh, look for any breaks in their nice smooth arcs. Look at the acetabulum, uh, the rims, and the articular surface by comparing both sides for symmetry. And finally, I look at those iliac wings uh, for, um, and the lumbar spine for, and the femurs for any lucencies or irregularities suggesting a fracture. So you can see here, because the pelvis is such an inflexible ring-like structure, um, pelvic bone injuries are normally found in multiples. And you want to be on the lookout for any subtle rami fractures with sacral iliac dissociation. These are, you can see here, we see bilateral pubic rami fractures after motor vehicle crash. But if you look at the left sacral iliac joint, it's also quite widened when compared to the right side. So this is basically, you would describe this as a pelvic ring disruption when you see those rami plus the SI joint involved like that. Now the acetabulum can be a little tricky. Um, you can have anterior and posterior acetabular fractures. The anterior ones, you want to look for a fracture in the iliopubic line. And the posterior, you want to look for a fracture in the ilioischial line behind the superimposed femoral head. And so in these patients, again, you want to really consider CT or MRI to pick up the 40% of missed intraarticular fragments and the 50% of missed femoral head fractures. This is an acetabular fracture. Um, that was actually oddly not well visualized on CT scan. This 19-year-old male sustained a horizontal fracture of the right acetabulum in a motor vehicle crash. This AP film shows the fracture line over the medial acetabulum and really a disruption of both the iliopubic and the ilioischial lines. If we look on the other side, those lines are intact. So you want to follow that iliopubic comes down like this. We can see it's nice and smooth on this side. And you want to follow that ilioischial. In this case, it's a fracture line, so it turns. Over here, the ilioischial line is nice and straight. Now, the femoral neck is the most commonly missed hip fracture. And because some elderly patients actually still bear weight despite having a fracture there, you want to look for any cortical disruptions or an impacted hyperlucency area. You want to make sure that there's nice, smooth cortical transition from the femoral neck to the head. And you want to look for disruption of the normal trabecular pattern that you see in the femoral neck. Once again, consider CTR MRI uh, to find that, uh, that nice, that non-displaced fracture before it becomes a displaced one. This is an AP radiograph um, showing an uh, impaction of the lateral femoral neck as well as a band of sclerosis outlined by the arrows in this 46-year-old male. In fact, there's loss of that nice, smooth trabecular pattern here, and there's also loss of that smooth cortical uh, transition from the femoral neck to the head. We can see that nice cortical transition going on over here, and we lost it over here. And so that's the tip-off for the fracture. We're going to move now and talk about the elbow. Um, in the AP view of the elbow, the radiocapitellar line, which is a line that's drawn through the mid-shaft of the radius, should bisect the capitellum in the absence of a radial head dislocation. So the radiocapitellar line looks like that. We can see that line coming right down the mid-shaft of the radius, 
bisecting the capitella. All right, so in the lateral view, there's another line we look at called the anterior humeral line. And that line is drawn through the anterior aspect of the humerus. It should bisect the capitellum also in the absence of a supracondylar fracture. Once again, we see that anterior humeral line. Now, when you're suspecting supracondylar fracture, that anterior humeral line passes through the anterior third of the capitellum or even in front of the capitellar, capitellum due to posterior bending of the distal humeral fragment. The other thing I'm going to bring up several times in this lecture is the importance of positioning, proper positioning. This is what happens when you have improper positioning of the AP x-ray of the left elbow showing just some soft tissue swelling there at the medial aspect of the elbow without any evidence of fracture. Well, patient still complained of pain. MRI was done a day later, which showed the avulsion fraction of that medial epicondyle. So make sure you get the correct positioning in order to pick these fractures up. Now we're going to switch to talk about the Montasia fracture. These injuries are usually caused by rotational forces, um, and the dislocations may not be that obvious. But the definition is a proximal ulnar fracture with a radial head dislocation. This is missed in about 50% of the pediatric population, and it's the tip-off for the dislocation, again, is that misalignment of the radiocapitellar line. Okay, so it's a proximal ulnar fracture with a radial head dislocation. It's another example here. The red arrow points to the ulnar fracture, and the blue line shows how that radiocapitellate line is displaced. This is another example of Montasia fracture dislocation injury. On either view, you can appreciate the misalignment of the radiocapitellar lines. Now, sublux, you can just have subluxation of the radial head alone. This is the most common traumatic injury of the elbow in children. It's also known as a pulled elbow or a nursemaid's elbow. The average age of incidence is two to four years of age. As children get older, the annular ligament gets thicker and resists tearing, making this injury less likely. What happens is the injury results from a pull on an extended and pronated arm. The annular ligament tears at its attachment to the radius and the radial head moves distally. As the traction is relieved, the annular ligament gets caught between the radial head and the capitellum. This diagnosis is a clinical one. Radiographs can be obtained to rule out other injuries, but the treatment entails re reduction of the subluxation by forcefully supinating the forearm with the flexed elbow 60 to 90 degrees. The child should be observed following the reduction to make sure that they use their arm shortly after the subluxation is reduced. Okay, radial head fractures. Uh, there are two fat pads within the elbow that are helpful clues in the evaluation of traumatic injuries of the elbow. Normally, on a lateral, radi lateral radiograph of the elbow, the anterior fat pad is seen as a small triangular lucency anterior to the distal humeral diaphysis. However, the posterior fat pad is ordinarily not visualized on a lateral radiograph because it is tucked away in the olecranon fossa. With fractures, the joint becomes distended with blood, the anterior fat pad becomes displaced superiorly and outward from the humerus, which is what we call the sail sign, like a jib sail of a boat, while the posterior fat pad gets displaced out of the olecranon fossa and becomes visible on the lateral radiograph. 
So basically, B points to the anterior fat pad, which in this case is displayed superiorly, so it's abnormal. But we can see those anterior fat pads normally, just not so superiorly displaced. And A is always abnormal. Um, that's a posterior fat pad. And so there's a subtle radial head fracture here. Anytime you have uh, that posterior fat pad or a superiorly displaced anterior fat pad, you're going to splint these patients um, even if you don't identify a fracture. This is, again, a very subtle radial head fracture with a superiorly displaced anterior fat pad sign and a posterior fat pad. Now, moving on to the wrist. Um, you got the PA view. That kind of shows you what's wrong with the wrist. The lateral shows you which direction the bones are moving. These joints in the wrist should all be symmetrical. That's the key here. The cortical margins, because the joints should be symmetrical, the cortical margins should all be parallel to you. And you know when you've got a correctly positioned PA view because you can see how the, the it's called the extensor carpi ulnaris groove. We see it right here. It's just next to the mid portion of the ulnar styloid. Now this bones kind of fit together like a, a jigsaw puzzle. And so you think about the bones being parallel to each other. Yeah, you could trace the cortical outlines of the margins of the bones. That's kind of normally what we do. However, if you think about the lines, tracing the lines of the carpal bones as a piece of a jigsaw puzzle, that's a lot easier. This parallelism is easier when regarding the carpal bones as pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that all fit together. When one bone is not paralleling the others, that one is out of place. If the rest of the bones still parallel each other, they have stayed together. So we can see here, this is on a PA view, the fact that the lunate is displaced. We see on the image, the picture on the left shows the abnormal overlapping of the lunate with the capitate, the hamate, and the triquetrum. We also see the medial profile surface of the scaphoid, but nothing is paralleling it. It's kind of all by itself there. The other joints are nicely parallel and symmetric. This leads to the conclusion that the lunate is displaced while the other bones have all stayed together. Now, the wrist, another way to think of it on the PA view is that it's got three smooth arcs along the carpal bones. And also keep in mind that the intercarpal distance should be less than three millimeters. Now, the first arc is a smooth curve outlining the proximal convexities of the scaphoid, lunate, and triquetrum. These are the proximal convexities here in the arc number one. The second arc traces, arc traces the distal convexities of these same bones, scaphoid, lunate, triquetrum. We can see the same bones there. It's just the distal arc. And then the third arc follows the proximal curvatures of the hamate and the capitate here. So think of these arcs as you look at these. If an arc is disrupted, it cannot be traced smoothly. A break in one of these arcs indicates a fracture or the disruption of a ligament leading to subluxation or dislocation. So this is an uh, interruption of the arc number one, seen at the luno-triquetral joint here, lunate, triquetrum, and there's a break in that arc. And that tells us uh, that there's been either a fracture or a or disruption of the ligament. This, the rest of the arc looks okay, 
It's just when you get here, this arc is broken up. Now, if we move to arc number two, we can see that there's been a disruption in the second carpal arc at the scapolunate joint, and the tri lunotriquetral joint is seen there on the left. Although there is a gap in the first arc, it can still be traced by a smooth curve, so arc number one is actually considered intact. So we see this gap here, but it's really at the scapholunate spot. This arc is doing its, one, its own thing here, but there's been this disruption in that second carpal lunal arc, scapholunate arc here that tells us about the fracture. And then finally, arc number three is a disruption in the third carpal arc. There's an abnormal step-off here of that capitohamate joint. We see this arc suddenly dips down right here. Okay, now when we turn to the, to the lateral, um, you really need a good position lateral view to see the volar edges of the scaphoid, the pisiform, and the capitate separately. The lunate is the semilunar bone that fits in that distal radius. We can see that lunate right in here. Now, when you have a perilunate dislocation, it's due to a hyperextension injury. Um, and the term perilunate dislocation, really it's a pattern that provides a whole spectrum of wrist sprains and fractures and dislocations. Now in this case, you can see how the capitate is not vertically aligned with the lunate and the radius on the lateral view. There is a smooth, the smooth middle arc of the carpal bones is disrupted, was disrupted on the PA view. Um, and, and in these cases, you want to worry about there being a median uh, nerve injury. Here's a lunate dislocation. Patient fell backwards. The lunate's rotated out of alignment. We call that a spilled teacup configuration on the lateral view. You lost that smooth proximal arc of the carpal bones on the PA view. Um, the triangular shaped, the lunate appeared triangular shaped instead of quadrilateral on the PA view. And again, these patients are at risk for nerve injuries. And then there's scapholunate dissociation. Uh, this occurs from a rotary subluxation of the scaphoid bone into a more transverse orientation, uh, which we call the Terry Thomas sign. It's greater than three millimeters of widening scapholunate space on the PA view. Um, basically, the, the gap between the scaphoid and lunate is normally up to two millimeters. Once it gets to three, it's abnormal. This is the most common and most significant uh, ligament is ligamentous injury of the wrist. Now, I didn't know who the heck Terry Thomas was. I had to look him up, but it makes sense. He's got this gap in his front teeth. He's some guy from the olden days. Now, chest x-rays, uh, especially particularly supine chest x-rays, have terrible sensitivities to pick up a pneumothorax. We're talking about a coin toss sometimes of a sensitivity. And it's the deep sulcus sign that is the most frequent finding on a pneumothorax when a pneumothorax initially missed on a chest x-ray. So what you're looking for is that costophrenic angle, angle that is deep, sharp, angular, and lucent. And we can see there's one here on the right-hand side. There's a deep sulcus sign there on the right-hand side. Here's another example of a couple of patients here. One's got a deep sulcus sign here on the right. And this image here has a deep sulcus sign on the patient's left. That may be the only tip-off in those supine patients. Of course, bedside ultrasound can get you to the diagnosis of a pneumothorax with uh, 
near perfect uh, test characteristics in a supine patient. So that's usually what I turn to. But if for some reason um, I was practicing a situation where I didn't have my ultrasound, then I would be thinking about these deep sulcus signs. Now, the spine sign is on the lateral chest x-ray. Um, and this is actually, while some people consider lateral chest x-ray not that helpful in diagnosing pneumonia, the spine side is the most useful finding for a pneumonia. Normally, the caudal thoracic vertebrae should become more radiolucent as you go down distally. However, an, ab uh, an abnormal opacity of the vertebral bodies tells us on a lateral chest x-ray that there is an infiltrative process going on. So here's the, um, this is a pediatric patient who's got pneumonia on the frontal view here. We see maybe a retrocardiac opacity there just to the left of the spine that's sort of obscuring the uh, silhouette of the aorta somewhere in here. When we move to the, uh, the lateral view, though, we can confirm that this opacity lies in the superior segment of the left lower lobe. We see this spine sign needs to get more radiolucent as we go down, but we see the positive spine sign going on there. This is another patient who's got bibasilar pneumonia and a very prominent lateral uh, spine sign. These vertebral bodies are not getting more radiolucent as we move distally. Now, what about the C-spine? Um, when you get a CT scan of the C-spine, you get a 14-fold increase in radiation dose to the thyroid. So the question is whether a standard three-view imaging can provide reliable screening for most patients with blunt trauma. And it's been answered a couple of times, and I'm not going to get into a big debate about this, but suffice it to say, if you get a good three-view uh, in your patient, I think um, that you may be able to avoid ordering CT scans on a lot of these patients and therefore avoid the radiation exposure. So here's how you got a, just a reminder. I know we all grew up reading these things, but just a quick reminder here. Um, you've you've got the four lines of lordosis and you've got the anterior longitudinal line, you've got the posterior longitudinal line, the spinolaminar line, and the spinous process line. All these lines should be smooth and, lord and lordotic without any disruptions or angulations. Any disruption of these imaginary lines should raise suspicions for ligamentous injuries or bony injuries. So here's an example here of some prevertebral um, soft tissue swelling. Any bulging or diffuse thickness is due to edema or hematoma and may signal an underlying injury in an otherwise normal radiograph. So if you look at the film here on the left, um, we, can, we can see uh, that these, um, these, the um, presence of the soft tissue space between the, um, here's the soft tissue here, we can see that the distance between here and uh, the vertebral bodies is, uh, should be no more than 6 millimeters here at C2 and no more than 22 millimeters down here at C6. Okay. Um, this is the epiglottis right here, and this is the hyoid bone here. Now, if you look at the image over there on the right, we see a widened prevertebral soft tissue space, and this raises suspicion of an occult injury and it mandates further injury, um, further imaging. The most common injuries associated with abnormal prevertebral soft tissue contour are occipital lantal dissociation, occipital condyle fractures, Jefferson burst fractures, odontoid fractures, C1 arch fractures, and traumatic rupture of the transverse atlantoaxial ligament. 
Moving on to the open mouth odontoid view, there are three types of uh, dens fractures. We can see the dens there in the, um, with the arrows showing that this patient has a type 2 odontoid or dens fracture. Um, it's right there at the junction of the base of the odontoid process and the ring of C2. Now, types 2 and 3 fractures occur at the base and can be associated with neurological deficits up to 10% of the time. Type 2 fractures are the most common odontoid fracture and carry about a 30 to 50% incidence of non-union. Type 1 fractures are uncommon and occur when it's just the tip of the dens is evolved from the insertion of the AR ligament, and these are stable. And talking about the uh, Atlanto dens interval, or ADI, the width of the, uh, the a this, this ADI interval is determined by the stability of the dens in the anterior arch of the atlas, which is determined mostly by the integrity of the transverse ligament. Now, the width of that predental space should be less than 3 millimeters in adults and less than 5 millimeters in children. When you have a rupture of that transverse ligament, which is often seen with a fracture, but in the absence of bony trauma, the atlantodental inter ADI interval is the only indication of disruption. These ligaments, ligamentous injuries are seen with hyperflexion, extreme lateral flexion, or vertical compression. Now, anterior subluxation is a disruption of the posterior ligaments resulting in hyperflexion or whiplash from rapid deceleration in motor vehicle crashes. Radiographically, anterior subluxation presents as hyperkyphotic angulation at the level of the injury with posterior fanning of the spinous processes and anterior disc space narrowing in conjunction with posterior disc space widening. This case demonstrates anterior subluxation with less than 50% of the C5 vertebrae on C6, uh, which is the large arrow there, and perching of the left articular facet, which is the small arrow. Now, the image to your right shows an MRI on the same patient, illustrating the potential for spinal cord injury when anterior subluxation is coupled with facet joint dissociation. Now, burst fractures result from an axial compressive force, usually a blow to the top of the head resulting in displacement of the fracture fragments, which may compress the spinal canal. These are unstable fractures, and they're easily confused with the simple wedge fracture due to the loss of the vertebral height. Burst fractures have vertical fracture lines that extend right through the complete height of the, verte of the uh, vertebral body. Clay shoveler's fractures are basically uh, a simple avulsion fracture of a, of a spinous process when the neck is forcibly flexed. And uh, the one image here on the left shows a clay shoveler's fracture of C6, C7. The middle image shows a clay shoveler's fracture of C6. And the right image shows on a CT scan uh, the patient in the middle image, uh, basically how benign the nature of the mildly displaced fractured spinous processes are. So these are stable fractures. And just keep in mind the importance of obtaining adequate films. Here's a lateral uh, cervical radiograph. Does it look normal to you? Well, you know, the problem is here's C1, C2, C3, C4, C5. I can't really see C6 down here. So again, if you cannot visualize uh, a good lateral film all the way down to C7, then that should be your impetus to order a CT scan. And here we can see on this patient, there's actually a fracture through the body of C6. 
reinforcing the concept of the necessity to evaluate the utility of adequate views when performing C-spine radiography. So to summarize, um, there are errors related to the misdiagnosis of fractures, which are a large payout of malpractice claims. The uh, Liz Frank fracture is a fracture of the second uh, metatarsal base with dislocations of the metatarsals 2 through 5 of the midfoot. Bowler's angle is less than 20 degrees, and it suggests an occult calcaneal fracture. A proximal fibular fracture with a medial malleolus from abduction and external rotation of the ankle can occur. A uh, radial capitellar line is a mid-shaft radius that should bisect the capitellum in the absence of radial head dislocation. The anterior humeral line is an runs along the anterior aspect of the humerus. It should bisect the capitellum in the absence of a supracondylar fracture. The wrist bones have cortical margins that should be parallel and fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. And there should, you should be able to visualize those three smooth arcs that we talked about. You want to look for the deep sulcus sign for a pneumothorax in supine patients in the absence of doing a bedside ultrasound. You can look at the lateral chest x-ray with the spine sign for pneumonia. And low-risk blunt trauma patients with adequate C-spine films may not require CT. And finally, consider the use of CT or MRI in any patient who cannot walk after getting negative x-rays. This concludes my presentation. Thank you.